Psalm 85, verse 1. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You've forgiven the iniquity of your people. You've covered all their sin. Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation. And cause your anger toward us to cease. <clears throat> Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him, and shall make his footsteps our pathway. This is the word of God. Psalm 85 is a prayer uh, for restoration, a prayer for revival. Not all scholars agree on the setting of this psalm, but it may have been written after the Jews had spent their 70 years in exile in Babylon and have now returned back to Jerusalem. Some of them have come back after God had promised to restore them after this time of exile uh, for their sin. And now they're back in their land, but they're crying out for restoration. See, just because they were back in their land doesn't mean that they have been restored. Just because their geographical location has changed doesn't mean their relationship with God has been fully restored. You know that very well, that your geographical location has very little to do with your relationship to God. Uh, some people come to church every Sunday and experience a, a, a fulfilling and a, and a close relationship with God. They love Him, they worship Him, but others can come and sit in the same building and experience very little of the presence of God in their lives. And so where you are has little to do with your, your standing with God. And we all come to places like this in our spiritual life, in our walk with the Lord, where we need some season of refreshing. Now, I, I, don't, I don't think uh, many of us are just super spiritual. We're all probably pretty average uh, in our walk with the Lord. There might be some super saints among us, uh, but most of us, I would say, uh, have ups and downs in our relationship with God. Are we in agreement there? Um, are any of you just on the high all the time and you and the Lord are walking side by side and there's never any days where you just feel distant? If so, I'd like for you to teach a Sunday school class come the first of the year and we'll all learn from you. Uh, but I think that because we're all wearing the same human flesh, we all have the same blood pumping through our veins, we all have the same sin nature, we all experience ups and downs, highs and lows, times when we feel close to the Lord and other times when we know that we're distant. We feel like he's very far away. 
And I think this is just part of the Christian life that we routinely need seasons of refreshing. We regularly need to come to God and ask for revival because we so easily slip into mundane, repetitious religion, if not into sin. It's come so naturally, so easily for us. And I don't say that just in our lives individually, but corporately as a church. We have to regularly come to the Lord and ask for restoration. We need to ask the Lord for revival. Because, well, churches are made up of people. And if the people in the church slip away from the Lord, then guess what? The whole church at times is going to slip and need a, a season of refreshing. So what do we do? What do we do about that? If we know that we have this need and this need keeps coming again and again, what's our response? And that response, very simply, is to pray. And that's what this psalm is. It's a prayer. It's pleading with God. It's a cry to God to send refreshing, to send restoration and revival. And we have to ask God to do it because it's not something that we can manufacture. We can't have musicians and singers and preachers so talented uh, that we can create something in the hearts of those who sit in our pews. If we want to be drawn close in our walk with the Lord, if we want to experience a revival as a church or even as individuals, if we want to be restored in our relationship to God, it's a work that the Spirit of God has to do in our hearts. And you know, sometimes even as a, as a preacher, that's a relief for me because it's I have a tendency to think you know I've got to say this just right and I've got to present it in just the right way so that people will hear it and they'll get it and their hearts will change well guess what no matter how good I say it uh, I can't change anybody's heart so I just want to tell you the truth I just want to tell you what God has said and let him do that work in you and before you feel the urge to remind me that it's the Sunday before Christmas and this doesn't sound much like a Christmas sermon, uh, let me just say up front that we'll see that the coming of Christ into the world is exactly what makes this relationship with God possible. You know this. You've been, if you've been with the Lord any time at all, you know that it is only through Christ and His advent, His coming into the world uh, that we can have this walk with the Lord. Christ came to save sinners, yes, but that's not all. Christ came to build his church, to dwell with his people, to maintain that fellowship, that relationship with you. His advent is the source of our hope for personal and corporate revival. The coming of Christ is our hope. And so if you want revival in your life, if you want to experience a, a personal restoration in your walk with the Lord, I just see three things simply in this uh, psalm that we need to remember, things that we need to acknowledge as we pray. And the first is simply this, it's past mercies. Past mercies. Verse 1 through 3, as these writers Pray. They're recalling the mercies that God has already shown to Israel. Verse 1, he says, Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You've brought back the captivity of Jacob. Now, in the context of the psalm, they're talking specifically about their location, about the fact that they've been brought out of exile and back into Jerusalem. 
That was a blessing. That was a fulfillment of God's promise. And, and even though it wasn't complete at this time, the people seemed to come back in spurts a little at a time. Some came back with Zerubbabel and some with Ezra and some with Nehemiah. And, and over time they came back. At this time at least, they could say to some degree that God has fulfilled His promise and brought the people back into their land. They were returning to inhabit it. But the land really isn't the most important thing, is it? Verse 2, he says, you have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. And this is language of atonement. It's, atonement is something that the Jews were very familiar with because of their system of sacrifice, right? They brought their lambs, they brought their bulls, their goats, and killed them. As a covering, as an offering for their sin. And even in the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and those, those things were reestablished. But we know as Christians on this side of the cross, at this point in history, we know that the ultimate fulfillment, the final atonement was made through our Lord Jesus. We know that our sins have been covered, and not merely covered, but they've been washed away. That through Christ, through His death on the cross, and he, Him bearing our sin, that we can stand before God righteous and clean. And we don't have to come back year after year and offer another sacrifice. We don't have to bring our offerings to God over and over and over again because that sacrifice was made for you once for all on the cross. Jesus covered your sins with His own blood and you can have a right standing with God. You are clean. You are washed. You are righteous in the sight of God if your sins have been forgiven. That's the language of atonement. And in verse 3, if, if verse 2 is language of atonement, verse 3 is language of propitiation. Verse 3 says, you have taken away all your wrath. You've turned from the fierceness of your anger. It's not a, a very popular thing to talk about the wrath of God to speak of God's anger towards sinners. We like to speak of His love. Um, we know the song in Christ alone that while on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. There was a group a, a few years ago that was assembling a hymnal for a, a denomination and they wanted to change those words from the wrath of God was satisfied to say that while on the cross as Jesus got, died, the, the love of God was magnified. And certainly that's true, that when Jesus died, God's love was magnified. But the love doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're under judgment. You see, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, well, you've been saved if you don't know what you've been saved from. You know what God saved you from when He saved you? He saved you from Himself. God, through Jesus, saved you from God. Because God is holy. He is just. He is righteous. He must, because He is good, punish sin. And because you and I sin, we must be punished. It is just, it is right for God to punish us. 
But when Jesus went to the cross, he, he died in our place. And in his death, all the anger that God had stored up for sinners, all of his wrath was redirected. It was aimed at Jesus and he bore the wrath. He bore the punishment for all of us, for all time, in three hours on the cross. And so now we can pray like the psalm. We can say, you have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Why? How? Because he poured it all out on Jesus. This is the mercy of God towards us. That he would remove his wrath. That he would turn his anger away. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus. God's wrath was removed from us when it was removed poured out on, redirected to Jesus. And listen, when we find ourselves discouraged by our spiritual progress, and you have one of those days that's a low in your walk with the Lord, when we're drawn away by sin or really any time that we, we sense our need for revival, a sense of restoration in our walk with the Lord, we must actively remind ourselves of the mercies of God. That Christ has died for us. That our sins are covered. That the anger of God has been turned away from us. Jesus' words to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. He said to them, he said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. You've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and found them liars. You've persevered and, and you have patience. You've labored for my name's sake and not become weary. You've done all these good things. But Jesus says to the church, nevertheless, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. What's the solution? What's the answer that he gives them? He says, remember, therefore... Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works. When your walk with the Lord is stale, when you're doing stuff out of monotony, when you've sinned, whatever it is that's keeping you at a distance from God, you know one thing that will draw you back every time? It's rem remembering the work that God has done in sending Jesus to save you. It's remembering the past mercies of God. This is exactly what Paul does in Ephesians 2 with them, right? He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You once walked according to the, the lusts of the flesh, after the desires of the flesh and of the mind. You were by nature children of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved. He reminds you of where you've been and where Christ has brought you from and who, he, who you are in Him. You are forgiven. You are clean. You are washed. You are His child. You want revival. You want restoration. You want to be drawn back to the Lord. Just think about all that God has done for you in Christ. Remember His past mercies. If we regularly remind ourselves of the good news that we've received in the gospel, we probably wouldn't need to take any further steps in restoration. The second thing I see here in the psalm, though, is our present need. Our present need. This is what we need to remember as we pray. This is the, the heart of the prayer. Asking God to meet the present need of the people. And he makes two requests here if I can distinguish these, to restore us and to revive us. 
Listen to the, the rhetorical questions that follow this request to restore us. He says in verse 4, Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? He, he knows the answer to that question. You know that God's not going to stay angry forever. You know that he's not going to punish every generation after you because of your sin. When you've strayed from God, the, the, the thought of his anger, the thought of judgment and, and, and chastisement can be overwhelming and even crippling. They know that he won't be eternally angry with them. They know his anger won't extend to all generations. He promised that. But it doesn't change the fact that in the moment of need, it certainly feels that way. And maybe that's a place where you are right now, where you've, you've slipped in your walk with the Lord. Maybe you're, you're dabbling in a sin, or maybe you're just not spending time in the Word and in prayer like you ought. Your, your relationship with God just isn't where it needs to be. The thought of God's judgment, the thought of God's anger can be overwhelming. It's just the way it is when you and I sin. But David's prayer of repentance after he sinned with Bathsheba in Psalm 51 went like this. He said, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He said, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. See, when you feel that God is distant from you, that God is hiding from you, or God is angry, when you feel that way, you know what you need to do? Tell Him. Just tell Him, God, you seem very far away right now. God, I'm praying for things and I don't feel like you're listening. God, I sinned, I know it, and I feel like you're mad at me. And you can ask for that restoration. God, restore me. Help me to remember what's true about you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And that's the first thing he prays for. Then he prays, revive us. Verse 6, he says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? To revive simply means to restore to life, right? To resurrect, to bring life to something that's dead. Just because Israel would be restored back to their land doesn't mean that they would have spiritual life. They would need God to revive them for that to happen. If there was a generation in Israel that followed the Lord and then they sinned, they had that relationship with God, but they sinned. They were carried off into exile. This is a different generation coming back. It's been 70 years. And this generation needs to know the Lord. This generation needs to receive that life in Him. And that happens in churches too. You know, you can think back on, on the old days when, when things were really good and the, the, the church was happening. And you look at what's going on now and you say, man, we need revival. We need to come back to that. What's happened? It's like another generation comes and things aren't the same anymore. 
Listen, the church will be revived when the people who make up the church receive life. The reason that many churches are dead is simply because the people that are in the churches are spiritually dead. What about this church? What about you? Don't get angry at me for this, but I would say that this church, just like nearly every other church, has people that are on the pews or even serving in ministries who are lost, dead in their sins, and on their way to hell. It's just the reality. See, when God sends revival, the people who are Christians in name only will have their eyes opened. They'll see that they're lost. They'll repent and be saved. Now, I can't make that happen. I can't convince anybody. But I pray earnestly that God will do it. I pray that God will open the eyes of the blind. If maybe you're one of those people, I pray that God will not let you go on deceiving yourself. But that His mercy will show you how lost and how sinful you are and that you will turn to Him and be saved. I pray that God would do that. We can't have revival as a church until we acknowledge our need, okay? There are churches that are in denial. They're not willing to think about these things. They're not willing to look internally and say, what's going on in my heart? What's going on in my church? What hinders the work of God? So church can't have revival until they're willing to acknowledge the need. That's what he's doing here. He says, will you not revive us again? He's acknowledging they have a need. Will you pray like that? Will you say, God, show us our need? God, restore us, turn your anger away, revive us that your people may rejoice in you. Will you pray like that? This is our need. Fake Christians have convinced themselves that they're real Christians, and real Christians have gotten comfortable with routine religion. Oh God, will you not revive us again? Verse 6 again, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Do you, do you rejoice in God? I'm not going to lie. Some days I get up, I try to open my Bible first thing. It's a joy some days. Not every day. Some days it feels like a chore to make myself resist the snooze button and open my Bible. But if God would revive us, we would have joy in Him. We would rejoice in His Word. 
we would rejoice to pray. We would rejoice to gather with his people. We would rejoice in sharing the good news with others. If we're not rejoicing in those things, we need revival. God, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord. Grant us your salvation. While we acknowledge our need and we pray to God to meet it, we pray for restoration, we pray for revival. What do we do while we wait? What do we do while we wait for God to answer that prayer? Verse 8, he says this. It switches to, to an I here. He's been saying we and us. And now in verse 8, he says I. It's personal. It's individual. He said, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. You have to decide for yourself. I will hear what God has to say. You can't do it for anybody else. You can't make anybody else hear from God. But you can say, you can decide, God, by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit within me, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. I will go to your word. I will be quiet. I will turn off the radio in the car. And spend time with the Lord. For he will speak peace. To his people and to his saints. Jesus came to bring peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Goodwill toward men. God came to bring peace. His word brings peace. Oh, it may be uncomfortable while he's dealing with your sin. But God intends to bring you peace. To his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Hear from God, forsake your sin. That's what you do while you wait for God to answer the prayer for revival. You pray for revival, and while you wait, hear from God and turn away from your sin. Hear from God and turn away from your sin. Don't need to say it again. Hear from God, get in the word, and forsake your sin. You will not experience revival without that. This church will not experience revival unless we hear from God and forsake our sin. I will hear what the God the Lord will speak. He will speak peace to His people. Let them not turn back to folly. Surely His salvation is near to those who fear Him. That glory may dwell in our land. We remember his past mercies. We acknowledge our present need. And we look to our future hope. That's the third thing, our future hope. Verse 10, he says, I love this poetic language. He says, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. See, truth and righteousness on one side are not in conflict with mercy and peace. They might appear to be because the truth is going to point out some ugly things about you sometimes. Righteousness will expose your sin. How can that possibly coexist with mercy and peace? What verse 10 says here that mercy and truth have come together. 
that righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's not just some abstract idea. It's just not something out there in the distance for theologians to think about. Friend, that happened in a person. That happened in Bethlehem. You see, when a, 2,000 years ago, when a, a girl became pregnant, even though she was a virgin, when her baby was born in Bethlehem, in that person, mercy and truth met together. In that person, righteousness and peace have kissed. That's in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the sinner who deserves to die at the hands of truth and righteousness finds mercy and peace with God. Verse 11, he says, truth shall spring out of the earth. Righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Israel had their hope in the God who had made promises to them that he would keep them. They believed that he would restore them fully to their land, to abundance and to glory. We hope in the ultimate fulfillment of this. In the age to come, when Christ comes again and establishes his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth, and where we who are his people live with him for all eternity. That's our future hope. Friends, as we pray for revival, we remember the past mercies of God. We have to acknowledge our need right now in the present. And we have hope that a day is coming where we won't slip in our relationship with God anymore. You know, right now we're at the, we have the ups and the downs. We, we're doing well. We're close to the Lord. And then we're at a place where we need restoration. And God comes and He brings us back. And then we're down again. But guess what? A day is coming when with it will be no more lows. And our relationship with the Lord is at a high all the time. As near to Him as we can be. Loving Him perfectly without hindrance of sin or the flesh. No pride getting in the way. No bad relationships causing us to turn our focus away from the Lord. But a day is coming for those who believe in Him where we won't need revival anymore. Because we will be constantly with our Lord forever. We have that future hope. And yes, it's because of Christmas. It's because Jesus came. Because He bought it for us with His life and His death. He purchased our redemption. Hope for revival is founded upon our hope in Christ. It's founded on our hope in Christ. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Yes, He did. And friend, if you are still in your sins today, you must repent and believe in Him. Turn away from whatever's holding you back. Turn away from whatever's got a hold of your life. And you put your trust, not in your goodness, not your righteousness, you, what you think you can do to please God. But you forsake all of that and you say, my only hope is Jesus. I'm trusting in Jesus. Jesus, you saved me. And He'll do it today. He'll forgive you. He'll wash you clean. He'll give you a new heart. 
with new desires, and he'll guarantee you a home in heaven forever. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus came that we might have fellowship with God. So Jesus, you who are saved, Jesus just didn't save you and say, good luck, see you in heaven. He's with you. He is our advocate with the Father. He is interceding in our behalf even now. He longs to restore you. He longs to revive His church if we'll simply turn to Him. Jesus came to guarantee us an eternity where we will never stray from Him again. As surely as He came the first time when He was a baby who was placed in a manger, I guarantee you, He will come again to gather His people to be with Him forever. Would you pray for this with me? Would you pray for revival? Remember His past mercies. Acknowledge your present need. And look to our future hope that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for sending Jesus into the world. <clears throat> Humbly as a baby, born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, who though he didn't deserve to die, laid down his life for us. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. I praise you that you have brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You've taken us, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, and made us alive in Christ Jesus. You've forgiven our sins. You've covered our iniquities. You've removed your wrath. Turned your anger away from us. We praise you. God, we acknowledge, Lord, that right now we do not find joy in you as we ought. Lord, I believe there are even some who don't know you at all. Oh, Lord, restore us. Revive us. Turn the hearts of your people toward you and save those who are lost. And we look forward to that day where we will never stray again. Where we will love you perfectly and walk near to you for all eternity. Do this, Lord, not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake. Amen.